Aníbal Acevedo Vila has become the only candidate for resident commissioner for the Popular Democratic Party for the 2020 general elections, while at the same time, the New Progressive Party is imploding itself thanks in part to no leadership. In US news, the US senators vote not to admit any additional witnesses during the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm Ivan Gonzalez and this is Inside the Colony. Okay, we're back now to discuss Aníbal Acevedo Vila and how he became the only candidate for the resident commissioner seat for the Popular Democratic Party in 2020. But first, let's look now at who has been Acevedo Vila for the past 20 years or so. So, he's a politician and a lawyer. He served in the House of Representatives in Puerto Rico from 1993 to 2001. He was also a resident commissioner from 2001 to 2005, and later to become the governor of Puerto Rico from 2005 all the way to 2009. That's his political accomplishments or major accomplishments. Of course, he was also a le legislative advisor uh, for uh, Rafael Hernandez Colon, which was also a governor uh, of Puerto Rico, and he later became uh, director of legislative affairs for La Fortaleza. All right, so that's also in his resume. But however, I mean, again, the his three main accomplishments was serving the house, resident commissioner, and later governor. He was indicted on March of two thousand eight in the U.S. District Court for the District of Puerto Rico on 19 counts of campaign finance violations. That was in 2008. Later to be charged again by with five more counts on August of 2008, the same year. And we know, we all know by, by now that on December of 2008, 15 of the original 19 counts were basically uh, dismissed or dropped um, by a judge, which basically said that there was a mis misinterpretation about the Puerto Rico um, uh, electoral law. Okay, so they, they dropped uh, 15 of those original 19. And to go back into his House record, uh, when he was back in the, in the House of Representatives again, he was fundamental, okay, in the Popular Democratic Party campaign against. Uh, technically, the 1993 status plebiscite. Very fundamental in beating uh, the state adoption of that plebiscite. He was also subsequently very important in the 1998 campaign against the Young Bill, which was a, a proposed legislative project in the U.S. House to resolve the Puerto Rico status. Uh, that was a, you know, the Popular Democratic Party again, with Aníbal Acevedo Vidal, was able to put a stop uh, to that project. So what happened was that the uh, governor by the time, uh, Governor Pedro Rosselló, decided to do his own plebiscite, his local non-binding referendum or plebiscite, uh, you know, to discuss or to vote on the different status options. So instead of voting and having the uh, young bail, 
uh, we just ended up with the local non-binding status plebiscite, which basically, you know, didn't reflect anything aside from that the whole popular democratic party decided to basically vote for none of the above options. Um, and you can go ahead and look for that up in Wikipedia or whatever other source you may want. There's more information about that. We might talk about this in another episode or another, you know, of this podcast, but for now we're just going to remain, we're not going to be talking about the specifics of the plebiscites, but for now, what you need to know is that basically he was fundamental in, in basically advocating against and beating um, the status movement uh, in those two uh, plebiscites, the 1993 and the 1998. So he won, um, you know, uh, after being the resident commissioner, he also won the general elections, the 2004 general elections, by a margin of about 4,000 votes. 4,000 votes, that's all there is. So what happened here? This election was basically highly, highly contested. Uh, he basically ran against the um, against Pedro Rosselló, which was, again, the governor from 1992 to basically uh, 2000. Um, he, he, Pedro Rosselló, basically filed a civil lawsuit against um, Aníbal Acevedo Vila, his party, and the whole elections thing. Um, because what happened was that the you know it was contested, s saying that there were mixed votes or basically double voting. Now, in order to you know, in order for you to understand what I'm trying to say here, uh, let me let me try to explain to you how the ballots are basically constructed here in Puerto Rico. So, the in, in the governor ballot, you're gonna have the governor, the the people that are gonna be running for governor. And under uh, under uh, this uh, candidate, you're going to have the resident commissioner. The resident commissioner is the um, sole representative we have for, uh, for U.S. Congress. Okay, So it's, uh, it's for the U.S. House. Um, they both run on the same ballot. And the ballot basically looks something like that. Something like this. If you have one party, let's just imagine one party in the ballot. Um, you're going to have a column which starts with the uh, party's insignia, right? Every party has an insignia. Makes sense, okay? So you have that. And then you have both of those candidates. First, you're going to have the governor, um, you know, candidate. And then on the uh, right under him, you're going to have basically the um, the resident commissioner candidate with their pictures and their names and all that. Okay. You're going to have spaces to basically pr um, mark your X, or put your mark, right? Uh, on either of the on, on either of those ca two candidates, you can you can you know you can do a mixed vote. You can vote for let's say Aníbal Acevedo Vila for governor, and say, well, you know what, I don't want the resident commissioner option that I have in that party because I don't I really don't like him. Um, I think it's bad, so I'm just gonna go ahead and vote for Aníbal Acevedo Vila on the Popular Democratic Party column, and I'm gonna jump and vote. Uh, do a mixed vote uh, for the resident commissioner of the new Progressive Party, for example. Well, that is something that is always been possible, right? Um, but also you can do a vote, which basically is a vote um, in the party's insignia. What was thought out and what's always been uh, thought out is that if you vote under the party's insignia, you are literally saying that you want or you're voting for everything that is under the insignia okay so if you have two candidates the governor and the resident commissioner and instead of placing a mark besides 
each of those two names, which you can do, right? Well, you put a mark at the top on the insignia, you are literally saying that your intention is that you want both of those candidates to be your candidates. That's that's your uh, that's where you chose, okay? So what ended up happening and what was contested was that um, people that are uh, are pro-independent, independence, sorry, pro-Puerto Rico independence, they voted, they pressed, they, they, they placed their mark under their party's independence insignia and also decided to vote and press and place an X on the Anibal Acevedo Vila candidate or photo under the Popular Democratic Party column. So this is what was being contested. The new progressive party was basically saying, hey, these people, this I don't know how many votes, this this all these people, we found out that they basically double voted. They voted here under the party's insignia for the independence pro-independence party, which means technically that they wanted both of their candidates, and but at the same time they voted for Aníbal Acevedo Vida. Well, this went to the Puerto Rico Supreme Court, it, it went many ways, but at the end of the day, the Puerto Rico Supreme Court ruled four to three in favor of Aníbal Acevedo Vila staying as the go elected governor for Puerto Rico in the 2004 elections. So technically he won by a margin of 4,000 votes in a very, in a highly, very highly contested election. During his run as governor, well, there's many things that you can say technically, but one of them is the government shutdown in 2006. This government shutdown was basically due to the fact that basically the legislature on Puerto Rico, meaning the House and the Senate, were controlled by the new progressive party. We had a, 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 a basically a, a divided government. The executive branch was from the popular democratic party while the legislative branch was from the new progressive party this created many many uh problems uh during his term as governor um some we can we can argue some were caused by him some were caused by the new progressive party it's politics it is what it is but at the end of the day it, some of one of the things that it ended up happening was the dispute you know due to budgetary issues uh, i mean of course nothing that you can nothing similar to the united states of course no i mean by any by any means, but um, it, it they were there were some disputes about budgetary things, uh, budgetary issues, uh, mainly pay, the the payment, uh, um, uh, salary payment for uh, public employees, right? Um, and he ended up shutting down the government uh, in two thousand six. He also was the person responsible for um, establishing the. Puerto Rico sells and use tax, what we call EVU. And to be fair, I mean, both parties, you know, are to blame for this. Of course, they do. I mean, I just said that the legislative branch was basically um, controlled by the New Progressive Party. So um, if any law passed the legislative branches, well, it's because, you know, that party basically passed those. But at the end of the day, um, he was the one that signed the law. And this is this is what is outrageous about this guy. This guy campaigned in the 2004 general elections saying that he was not going to, you know, sign any bill that had to do with sales taxes in Puerto Rico. But he, he ended up making this bill. And and the, and the funny thing, the bad part about this guy, I mean, this guy is, is vicious. This guy, there's a video of him. 
that I'm gonna you're gonna hear it soon, okay? There's a video of him that he is basically laughing about the fact that he was able to um, uh, s sign the evil into law. But the way he was laughing and the reasons he was laughing is what makes this outrageous. So here's a Sebo Vila laughing about it. Cierra la puerta, cierra la puerta, que no me oye. Me llama Héctor Ferrer y me dice, gobernador, ¿qué pasó? Radicaron el proyecto y aquí está lo que el país necesita, que tú hablas. Gobernador, aquí está el 5.5 más el 1.5. Y yo le dije, y yo le dije, pues te callas la boca. Se aprobó, se aprobó y llama el secretario de Hacienda. Secretario, Héctor Ferrer me dice que eso está ahí, pero yo no le creo. Y efectivamente fue el secreto mejor guardado. Y obviamente pues pasó lo que todos ustedes saben. And of course everybody in the room is laughing. Everybody's laughing about it, like clapping, yay, yay, you, you yeah, what did we just sign? We got, we got evil, yay. This guy, I mean, this is great stuff right there, great stuff. I mean, I'm glad you were able to hear, hear that uh, here in the podcast. Anemira um, Vila is, is, is not, should not be taken lightly, let's put it that way. This guy is savvy in politics, he knows how to go around things. And he is not to be taken lightly. But how do we end up with him how, in 2020? How did the Popular Democratic Party basically end up him with him as the sole candidate in the resident commissioner seat? Well, very easy. The There was a requirement that every candidate was to provide half of the endorsements by midday on January 31st, 2020. And basically to report the reminder half or 50%, by February 15th of 2020. So he's only contender, right? His opponent in the same uh, party for the primaries was Jose Nadal Power. He was only able to gather around 1,600 votes. I mean, not votes, sorry, uh, endorsements. Um, so that is about 20% of what was required instead of the 50% uh, requirement. And even Acevedo Vila, by the, on the other hand, was able to file um, the requirement uh, with 4,500 4, uh, endorsements, about 56%. S this is the reason why, basically, uh, Jose Nadal Power was eliminated from the primary, uh, or basically was eliminated from as, as, as being a candidate um, for the resident commissioner seat in the Popular Democratic Party, leaving... Aníbal Acevedo Vila as the only candidate. Um, he, Nadal Power, basically requested a time extension, but was denied by the electoral commissioners. So um, he had no chance. I mean, no, no one was going to approve any extensions. I mean, this is this is election year. This is 2020. This is election year. If you don't have endorsements by this time, I mean, what the hell are you doing? Seriously? What are you doing? I, I mean, technically, Aníbal Acevedo Vila's fourth... 1,500 uh, endorsements is not really that great. It doesn't It doesn't look great for him either. You're, you're supposed to have 8,000 endorsements by now. I mean, you're running a campaign for, for God's sake. You were, uh, like I said, governor, uh, resident commissioner. You're, if you have only 4,000, you were only able to, re you know, to comply with the minimum requirement. That speaks volumes about how your campaign is basically evolving. It is it's very bad. Uh, let's look at the governor race. The governor race in the PPD. Uh, so Eduardo Batia is. Well, there's the three. There's basically three candidates right now. 
um, for the governor race in the Popular Democratic Party, Batia, Eduardo Batia, uh, Charlie Delgado, and the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Union Cruz. So Batia was able to um, file uh, 7,400 endorsements. Charlie Delgado was, on, was able to file 5,575. And Carmen Julian was able to file 4,070 endorsements. Again, the best one here is Batia by a great margin. He pretty much almost completed the endorsements, the 8,000 requirement. Um, but the other two, I'm telling you, I mean, uh, and Charlie Delgado was with, uh, I mean, his candidate was Jose Nadal Power. I don't understand how these people um, were not able to, um, I mean, at least Jose Nadal Power was not able to obtain the, the recording endorsements. He blamed it on the on the uh, recent earthquakes that we were having since uh, um, the, the end of uh, 2019, on, on December. Um, but again, I mean, come on. And the earthquakes are only happening, major, I mean, primarily on the southwest region of Puerto Rico and I, I, I understand that people there are reluctant and they're not in the they're not in the politics um, mood right now I mean this is, this is not what their concerns them the, 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 obviously what concerns them is the earthquakes and their houses and their safety and all that and that is understandable that is perfectly normal and uh, my god I hope that everybody can help them already and and, and, and solve um, their problems and that the earthquakes will stop uh, we wish their uh, our fellow, um, uh, you know, people on the southwest and, and the whole island, of course, uh, the very best. But this is this is something that technically is happening mostly over there. It, it doesn't affect the whole island. I mean, the whole island. If if if, if everybody else was able to find their endorsements, why this? Why 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 you couldn't? Right. So again, this party ended up with having Acevedo Vila as their candidate. And to be honest with you, it is the worst of the PPD had to offer. This is the worst candidate you could ever have on a ballot by the Popular Democratic Party. I don't, I don't think it's gonna resonate very well with uh, the PPD voters. I think he's, he's gonna get rejected. Uh, I mean, we, 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 we shall see. But I think that a lot of people are going to cross party lines, whether that be crossing to the New Progressive Party or crossing to some other uh, party. Um, uh, we don't know. But I don't think, I honestly don't think that the uh, Popular Democratic uh, uh, voters are going to go um, with this um, with this candidate. I, I don't think so at all um, because of all that happened in the past. Um, so anyway, uh, we're going to discuss later uh, the how the, the New Progressive Party, I mean, this is all that has been happening in the Popular Democratic so far, but the New Progressive Party, oh man. They're in for a treat, man. They're 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 killing themselves. I mean, they it's like they don't want to win the election at all. No, I mean, not not at all. We don't we don't have uh, a reason to win. We're we're basically self destructing. It's, it's 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 imploding itself. So we're gonna be right back, and uh, after the um the sponsors, and we're gonna be discussing how the new progressive party basically is destroying itself and killing itself for this 2020 general election. Be right back. In order for me to explain what's going on with the New Progressive Party, I, we have to go a little bit back and explain how uh, how we arrived to where we're at right now. Okay, we don't have to go too far back, but at least we got we got to the so-called infamous uh, summer of 2019. What happened in the infamous or famous summer of 2019? Well, one thing happened, which was that then-governor-elect Ricardo Rosselló had to resign. We elected Ricardo Rosillo back in the 2016 elections, and he started his term in the, in the year 2017, and he resigned 
um, somewhere around August of 2019, right? The summer of 2019. And well, he had to resign pretty much because there were massive, massive, massive and constant protests. Um, and, you know, these protests were basically exacerbated by the fact that there were a series of uh, leaks, uh, chat leaks, basically, that that were considered to be very disrespectful, very dishonest, and very shameful, to say the least, by a whole lot majority of the people uh, of Puerto Rico. So even though some may say that, yes, the protesters were basically anti-statehooders or, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, socialists, well, yes, there, there's always, there's always going to be, you know, that side of of the of the of the of the, of the protesters yes of course uh they're gonna find their way into okay let, this is a this is a this is a good time for me to protest and and and, and do a manifestation yes that's gonna happen but in in reality it was actually exacerbated by these chats uh again that were leaked to the public um and that very many 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 people consider them to be very shameful to say the least right so he had to resign well, what happened back then? I'm going to do a very summarized version of what happened then because we were weeks and weeks and weeks into this. And people were very tired back then. Ricardo Rosselló basically won a primary election back in 2016 against Pedro Pierluisi, which was obviously the former uh, resident commissioner, two-term resident commissioner here in the island. And he was also a secretary of the Department of Justice back in the Pedro Rosselló, the Ricardo Rosselló's father, administration back in the 90s. So he ended up beating uh, Pedro Pierluisi back in 2016. So in when he was basically in the middle of this, uh, this summer, summer 2019, he considered Pedro Pierluisi as secretary of state. Now... Our constitution is very clear on who is to succeed the governor in case the governor is to resign or, or you know, dies or, you know, has to basically, you know, we are basically left without a, a governor. So the, the constitution mandates that the first in line is the secretary of state. We don't have a vice governor. So it is the secretary of state, which is appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate and the House. And second in line is the Secretary of Justice. There's more people in line. I think uh, Secretary of, uh, of Education is the next one in line, something like that. I, there's there's a couple in line. I'm not going to mention them all because they're not relevant for the discussion. Um, but technically, there's, there is a clear path on, on who is first, second, third, and so on. So he decided that he wanted to appoint and make, you know, at the time, made all the sense in the world. Well, I'm appointing the guy that I actually beat three years ago as Secretary of State so he can replace me when I resign. Problem was, he did that. And when he resigned, Pedro Pilici actually took over. He was the de facto governor of Puerto Rico for just a couple of days. I think like four or five days. And I'm not, I'm not lying about this. Uh, I think it, it lasted pretty much a week, if 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 any. Um, but why 
it lasted so so short well happened was that he was not confirmed by the senate the senate blocked his his confirmation um he was he was though confirming the house but after confirming the house uh he was supposed to be confirming the senate he didn't he was not confirming the senate so this was contested and the supreme court ultimately ruled that the sworn in of pedro pierluisi was actually not um was not valid was unconstitutional so he had to step down. After he stepped down, Juan de Vasquez basically was the governor of Puerto Rico by constitutional mandate. She was the next in line. She was Secretary of Justice back then. So she got the nomination. Well, not the nomination, but the you know the position of governor, which was basically imposed by her uh, to her by the constitution. And at first. She basically didn't want the position. I mean, back when the protests were going on and everybody was, you know, holding to their seats, what was going on? What was going to happen? Is this is, this, is Ricardo Rosario going to resign? Is he not going to resign? What's going to happen at the end of the day? When everybody was basically on the expectation, she tweeted and she, you know, tweeted a couple of messages saying that she was not interested in, in being the governor. But ultimately, constitutional mandate, you know, prevailed and then she had to go with it, right? She was forced to have the the seat. Afterwards, he she, she basically uh, said, "Well, you know what? I, I'm gonna accept uh, the responsibility, and you know this is what's been you know mandated by the constitution. So I am going to go with it. I will accept it, and I'm gonna move forward, and I'm gonna end the term that Ricardo Rosillo was supposed to end in 2020. So she changed her mind at the end and started." acting as the governor. At the beginning of her governor mandate, I guess, she was saying, oh, well, I'm not a, I'm not political. I've been a, I've been a uh, government uh, official all my life. I've been a public, um, public employee all my life. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not political. So I'm just gonna go with this. I'm gonna run it. As as unbiased as I can, and and I'm gonna finish the term, and that's gonna be it. Happened was basically, I, I mean, a few months later, she decided that she was gonna run for re-election. Many people were pushing about, it, you know, were pushing her to do this. I mean, it was expected back then, and oh well, it seems like she has some sort of support uh, from a side of the new progressive party base so she said okay i'm gonna i'm gonna run for governor so at that time uh technically everything started spinning backwards like until that point everybody was like you know what she's doing fine she's not doing terribly i mean i'm okay with the decisions she's been making so far uh she has signed some laws um, including the, uh, the the new gun law that was uh, enacted and signed by her. Thank you very much, Wanda. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, but really, I mean, she was she was seen as an okay, you know, doing everything pretty much okay. Uh, nothing major that we needed to basically argue about. But when she announced her bid 
for the 2020 campaign, everything started falling apart. Because, obviously, the structures of the party decided that, okay, Pedro Pierluisi should be our candidate, right? Um, he's, this, you know, he ran again. Pedro Pierluisi ran against Ricardo Rosselló and lost. So the, um, the obvious choice was, okay, Pedro Pierluisi. And Pedro Pierluisi decided and, and he expressed himself that he wanted to run for the governor um, race. So now we're met with primary elections, something that we didn't thought we were going to have. We are basically in this scenario. And the Popular Democratic Party is going to have their own primary elections for the first time, actually. We have had them before, but but we were not expected to have primary elections then. And by her announcing her intention to run, the base starts to split. And she starts making a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, uh, January came, uh, December came, January came, major earthquakes, um, strong earthquakes started, you know, occurring in Puerto Rico, in the southwest of Puerto Rico, as I mentioned before. Um, and this emergency was not handled properly. To say, to say the least, there were many, many missteps along the way, many things that needed explanation, and she started basically, you know, stumbling and making mistakes. And the base starts to divide itself and say, "Oh no, it should be Pedro Pierluisi. Oh no, it should be Wanda, and all this thing." And and that's all fine. I mean, I I, I get it. You know, everybody's gonna have their own preference about who's supposed to be the our candidate for uh, the uh, the governor race against the uh, the rest of the candidates of the other parties. But you know what? One thing is to actually say that, and this is this is my critique here. We have not learned as a party. We have had many primaries before this is not the first one we're not noobs at this thing we're not freshmen here i mean this is something that i could possibly maybe think about the popular democratic party that they're going to be doing this now that they're going to have for the first time an, a primary election for governor seat but not for us we, this this is this should be second nation to us we should be learning but no i mean the the new progressive party it doesn't have any discipline it's like Everybody is pushing for themselves, uh, for their own good, and everybody, and it's just, it's a complete mess. And everybody just starts shooting missiles and, and, and firing rockets at the other side. Um, and this is, it doesn't help, really. If you want to win an election, you cannot do this thing. You cannot actually go and try to destroy your opponent that is basically of your own but the same party you're you're basically running because at the end of the day people are going to get mad people are because well you, you know for of what because of whatever you said about her or about the followers her followers or his followers and everybody's going to get very mad and whoever wins needs to unite the party that's how it goes it's always been like that and this is this is the Achilles heel right here. We have not learned to have a more mature, less vicious, less destructive campaign. 
and it's not just one person, it's everybody at both both sides of the aisle. And just to name an example, Alerta Progresista is one example. There's many examples around it. This is just an example. I don't want to hit on him or her. I'm not, I don't know, but I don't want to hit on Alerta Progresista. But it's just an example. Alerta Progresista has many other followers uh, on both sides are constantly tweeting, are constantly posting on Facebook, and it's it's, it's most of these things are kind of mean. I, I don't have a problem with you trying to advocate how good your candidate is and why we should elect this person versus the other one. I don't have a I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean that's that's legit. But if you are on this if you're running on the same party, you have to be more careful. You just have to be. And this is not Alerta Progresista's fault in, in any way. If you're the leader, if, if you're Pedro Pierluisi, if you're Wanda Basket, you need to sit down. I really I really think you need both to sit down and lay out the terms of the campaign. Because at the end of the day, is one party that is going to suffer at the end if you cannot unite the other half or the other 30% or the other 25%. And it's the, and, and that 25, 20, 30, 40, 50% is something that you're going to need in order to beat and win the elections. If you're thinking that you're, you can win the elections by criticizing and destroying and humiliating the other candidate, you are wrong. You're actually mistaken. And you, we ha you have not learned that people are resentful. And people get mad. Oh, you hurt my feelings. Well, yes. Snowflake, yeah. But it is what it is. So leaders need to sit down and need to lay, lay out a strategy of how you're going to run the campaign in order to make it so that you can actually unite the party back afterwards. This, this should be common sense, but again, it's not happening. And I'm really, really disappointed at this because I think that, I mean, I, I'm not going to speak to who I, I, I'm i going to, you know, I'm, I'm basically leaning towards to right now. I think both are great assets. And if you try to minimize one versus the other, you're going to, again, you're going to end up with a very, um, very mad base, at least. And again, this is not just to win an election. This is this is not to win an election by because of the for the fact for the sake of winning an election. No, you are gonna have a status plebiscite during the general elections. And if you want to win that, and you want to send people to vote, you might as well have your people not so mad because if not, you end up not you end up you ended up risking not only losing the election but actually losing the plebiscite. And it's going to be a statehood up or down vote, yes or no, on statehood. And this is this is a very risky move. I mean, we have never has we have never had this type of uh, plebiscite before, where we are actually saying straight out, you got to vote yes or no to statehood. This is like saying yes or no to independence or yes or no to uh, territorial status, right? Uh, involuntary servitude. So again. This is a very risky move and a very risky plebiscite or a referendum, whatever you want to call it. I'm not a lawyer, so, you know, sorry about that if I messed up. But we're going to have 
this we're going to be consulted on this and if you really want to win this you better have everybody on board this is what i'm saying everybody should be on board more so if we're going to try to get actually federal approval of this preface uh plebiscite out of referendum we have 2.5 million dollars that were appropriated back in congress i don't know back in the obama administration that we have not been able to use that congress have not released the funds or actually the deal the, the congress have not released the funds because doj the, the, the u.s department of justice has not have not approved the uh, ballots for uh, the plebiscites that have taken place after this money have, uh, was appropriated by Congress. So because the DOJ has not approved, we have not been able to use this money and we have not been able to have uh, basically a, a, what we call a, a federally sponsored uh, plebiscite or referendum. And I think, in all honesty, I'm going to talk about this in, in a separate um, podcast, probably in the next podcast, but uh, into, into more detail, of course, but I really think that we should be getting the federal sponsorship we, we should be getting this 2.5 million not be, not for the sake of having 2.5 million to finance um you know the cost of, of running a referendum but actually to have the doj approve the definitions of the ballot and basically have a more binding more legit process of self-determination and that i think will be very useful however whether or not we're going to have that, we don't know. Um, and we have to go, we have to move forward with it. Whether we have it or not, we have to move forward with the referendum. And if, again, if you want to win the referendum, we got to win it. We got to unite people and we got to go, you know, and vote. If you have people mad, people are going to stay at their houses and we are, we risk losing, again, not only the election, but the status referendum. So, moving a little bit into the United States side, the U.S. side, um, as you may know, there was an impeachment in the House. Um, they impeached Donald Trump, and the proceedings went over to the Senate uh, side. And the Senate basically has to hear all the witness testimony and every, you know, every 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 piece of evidence that was basically lifted. Or, um, uh, or or heard of during the uh, impeachment trials in the House, they have to be heard, and uh, again in the Senate, uh, and, and how you know how this works is that the uh, senators are the ones that are basically it's technically the jury, but also it's like it's a mixed thing there, but but they're they're the ones that are going to have to vote on whether um, you know. President Trump is, 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 is guilty or not, and is ultimately acquitted. So, um, it is the House responsibility to basically interview people, interview witnesses, gather information, gather evidence, and vote on whether or not, based on that evidence and based on those um, uh, interrogations and all that, whether to, or not to impeach a president. And it is on the Senate court uh, responsibility to say, well, um, yes, we found you impeached, we found him guilty. And, you know, he has to, you know, resign or whatever. Um, it is not the Senate responsibility to actually admit new witnesses or new testimony. That is not their responsibility. It is the House responsibility to actually do that. Okay. But what happens is that um, the Senate actually voted already 
not to admit any new additional witnesses. And the and, and the House Democrats are saying, "Oh, this is this is this is bad because why, how could they how could they now vote?" Uh, they have not been fair in the process. They have not admitted witnesses. How could they not call John Bolton? You know what? It is. It was your responsibility to call John Bolton. You didn't call John Bolton. That's on you. You needed 15 witnesses and you called 10. You missed five. Shame on you, right? It's not my call. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility. So if you ended up, um, uh, you know, missing those five or those 10 or, or that one, single piece of evidence that you decided not to gather and not to interview well again shame on you shame on you house democrats but you cannot say now that the senate needs needs to or should um uh, hear additional witnesses and should have john bolton sit down there and be questioned about well you didn't do it why should we right why, why should the senate do it but the senate uh you know, voted already that it was not going to have any additional witnesses. So what happens now? Well, technically, the um, um, they now have to go and vote on whether to uh, acquit President Trump or uh, vote that he was he's guilty of the charges. And then there's two charges, um, and this is going to happen in the next few days. Uh, and I, and everybody knows already that Donald Trump is going to be acquitted. There's no doubt in anybody's reasonable mind that Donald Trump is going to be guilty. There's no way. Um, the House did not prove their case. It was not a solid case. Uh, I think Donald Trump did a couple of bad stuff that he should have not done. Should have used more of. He should have had better judgment on it. I don't think that's impeachable though. And many Republicans see it this way. I don't. I'm not sure if may, maybe one or two them uh, Republicans are going to see it as, as uh, differently. Maybe maybe some votes. Maybe someone on the Republican side votes. Or, you know, one, two, or three guys uh, senators vote on on uh, uh, you know against the party line. But ultimately, I don't. You know, for me personally, I don't think it's. Uh, it, it is. It is a matter of. It, it is sufficient to impeach. I think he should have been more judgmental about what he was doing with Ukraine and the um, you know the withholding of, uh, of uh, aid um, you know uh, to Ukraine because of this investigation uh, and about Hunter Biden and all that so really it's gonna come down to the Senate saying Trump is not guilty Anyway, guys, this has been all for this podcast. I am Ivy Gonzalez, and this is Inside the Colony. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Also, please tell your families, your friends, and everyone you know about this podcast and tell them to subscribe as well. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, and almost everywhere you listen to your own podcasts. And if you want to support this podcast, you can also go to anchor.fm slash itc slash support. That is anchor.fm slash itc slash support. You can find a link of this in the description of our channel. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day.